Hello, I'm Cathy Rensenbrink and this is the Bookseller Podcast. Hello and welcome to the fourth edition of the Bookseller Podcast. The Bookseller has been the magazine of the book trade since 1858, reporting on everything from the publication of The Mill on the Floss to the launch of Harry Potter. The Bookseller also runs the annual British Book Awards, which is like the BAFTAs for books. In this edition, we're talking to Tom Kerridge about his best-selling book, Fresh Start. Let's be honest, it's an egg box with, with something <laughs> stuck on it. Like, the end result isn't great, but they feel so proud of it, you know, and that, it's the same sort of thing with food. To Tom Tivnan and Kira O'Brien about March Publishing. To Caroline Carpenter about the YA Book Prize. And we'll play out with an audiobook extract from It's Not About the Burka, written and read by the awesome Mariam Khan. As I watched it all unfold online, I realised that I was always hearing things about... Muslim women, things about who we were. And we'll be talking to this month's book doctors about which books they'd choose for our patients, eager readers who want to know what to pick up next. First, let me introduce you to this show's contributors and experts. We've got Tom Tivnan, Kira O'Brien and Caroline Carpenter from The Bookseller. Hello. And with me, as he is every month, is The Bookseller's chief exec, Nigel Roby. Hello. Very good to have you all with us. So, Tom, tell us, what are the big books coming out in March? In fiction, probably the biggest release is Sadie Jones' The Snakes. People might remember Sadie Jones for her first book back in 2008. It won the cost of first novel. It was a massive big seller because it was on the Richard and Judy book club. So that was a huge bestseller. Um, she's written three books since, which haven't sold as well. And they were all historical novels. So a new one is her first contemporary novel. And it's about this couple, this English couple, who go to visit the wife's brother, and the new husband finds out that his wife is now very rich, and he didn't realize this before, and there's huge family secrets, and there's this sort of backdrop to a family just in turmoil, and it's really kind of twisty and turning. I'm saying all this, but I haven't actually read it. But my colleague, Alice O'Keefe, who's been on the podcast before, who's our books editor, has been talking about it incessantly for the past two months, three months. So she recommends it highly. And what about your own personal well, recommendation my own. for this month? <laughs> the, the one I have read <laughs> is uh, The Lost Children Archive by Valeria Luiselli. I don't know why I'm saying that in that sort of strange sort of cod Italian accent, because she's Mexican. Um, so she's a Mexican writer based in New York. Um, and this book is, you know, as timely as today's headlines. It's about migrant children coming to America from Latin America. And it's based loosely on work she did as a translator. She was working for doing volunteering for New York courts of people coming in. And what she's done with this book, it's really amazing. It just kind of humanizes the story of all these kids. And they're kids that a lot of migrant children come alone, which is not really reported on. Uh, you know, teenagers, even people young as seven or eight, coming into the United States and, you know, trying to get better their lives. And she just paints this huge picture in a very small book of... A problem, And it sounds, when I'm saying it like that, it sounds really worthy, but it's not. It's kind of more about the human side. And it's a book probably Donald Trump should read, but I'm sure he won't. Yes, it's an interesting game, isn't it? Which books would we like our political leaders to read? I saw the other day that Nicola Sturgeon said she thought that Theresa May should read Small Island by Andrea Levy, which, of course, she should. We all should. Anyway, we'd like all our leaders, I suppose, to have more compassion and reading books is often the way to get more compassion. Um, on that note, the children's book of the month is just delightful. Tell us about Tad by Benji Davis. Oh, it's, Tad is amazing. <laughs> um, Benji Davis, people might know uh, from The Storm Whale, which is about a, 
a whale was washed on the beach and a little girl takes the whale and keeps him. <laughs> but this is Tad. Tad is a tadpole uh, and she's swimming around with all of her other brothers and sisters and they start growing up into frogs. But she is still a tadpole being left behind. And so it's, yeah. <laughs> so so it's about her and trying to make her own way in this pool where she is. And there's a giant fish called Big Blub who looks sort of like Nigel Farage to my... <laughs> um, I don't know if that was intentional. But it's it's a really sweet story about growing up but making your way in the world. And it, I would recommend it for any parents, for kids who are a bit odd, a bit... <laughs> Like I was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or little bookworm children. Isn't Benji Davis, was, was it Grandad's yeah. Island? Yeah, Grandad's oh, Island. Oh, that well. was a lovely yeah. little book. Yeah. I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant author and illustrator. Mm-hmm. I do love a kid's book that really makes me weep. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, they this do, will. don't they? Because they I tug mean, at the heartstrings. Yeah. Just the thought of children feeling left behind. When, of course, they're all unique individuals who should be treated as such. Which I'm just going to throw in a recommendation for Philippa Perry's brilliant book, the book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad you did, because it is all about celebrating children as unique individuals. Anyway, a bit off topic. So. <laughs> no, no, it's bang on topic. Yeah, I guess, it's, I guess. Um, but it's wonderful. But it is, it's exactly that. And the way the modern world kind of encourages us into wanting our children to rush through all their developmental milestones rather than enjoying them becoming the people that they're meant to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cookery-wise, this is an interesting trade story, isn't it? Pinch of Nom. Yeah, so this is one of the big non-fiction books of the month. Um, So Pinch of Nom is a blog, the UK's biggest uh, food blog, uh, run by these two women called Kay Featherstone and Kate Allenson, who used to run a restaurant together in the world. And it's called Pinch of Nom 100 Slimming homestyle recipes. And it's quite interesting. It's kind of every once in a while in the trade, we have these books that kind of shift the conversation in the sort of cookery sort of diet market. It was Joe Wicks with everything had to be lean. Before that, it was about clean eating. Now, this is kind of geared purposely so towards an older audience, a kind of more Weight Watchers style audience, if you know what I mean. It's less rigorous. And it's more about kind of celebrating eating but still being slim. Uh, I think it was number one on the day that it was announced because of the huge amount of people that yeah, knew it because of the blog. Yeah, something like 1.5 million people visit the blog every month. So that is a huge, huge audience to go to. And I, I think it's going to be a massive bestseller. And anything else you want to mention in March? My personal pick is called 1776, A London Chronicle. It's a really strange little book uh, by a smaller press called the Bunbury Press which is basically source material from 1776 where people are partying and going about their daily lives while Britain is losing the Americas. Mm. So I think <laughs> while it's a period of history which I'm quite attuned to because of my American background when we broke free of you all. Um, but also, <laughs> And then you came back. <laughs> yeah, and then I came back. You brought me back. Um, but also it has connotations to what's going on now with a nation at a crossroads and what are we doing as a people to think about what is happening politically? Interesting times indeed. Thank you so much, Tom. Kira, you've been looking at books in the media. Now, I love the email you send out on Mondays. Tell us about that. Basically, we pick our book of the week, which is the sort of newest, buzziest book that's getting all the attention from the reviewers in the weekend papers. And we have a couple of others too that are sort of bubbling around 
um, and doing quite well and getting there because uh, on Books in the Media we have a star rating which is brought together from um, a very special algorithm that I'm not going to pretend to understand <laughs> but it weights every publication up for its own rating so if you're getting five stars on Books in the Media then basically everyone loves you. Oh, and what is what are the books that are in this week's? Um, well, Tessa Hadley's Late in the Day was our book of the week a few weeks ago, which is about a group of close friends who'd have to deal with a sudden loss. Um, and Tessa Hadley really is kind of the author's author. Like uh, Zadie Smith is a big fan. But it seems that reviewers are now starting to catch on as well. There's a lot of words like subtle and delicate and gentle used to describe her prose amongst the reviews, but it seems Iona McLaren in the Daily Telegraph just comes right out and says it. She's like, why isn't Tessa Hadley more famous than she is? And she says, perhaps it is, because it's hard to describe what, what makes her such a good novelist without falling into the trap of calling her books quiet. Mm. Um, and then she says, late in the day is a quiet book, but it might also put you off loud books for life. Oh, that's very nice, isn't it? I think also the word domestic. Yeah. I love domestic novels, but of course, I mean, why? Why we don't think what happens in the home is interesting is beyond me. But we're slightly in that trap that if you describe something as domestic, it can sort of slightly sound as a put down. So, yes, describing quiet domestic novels as quiet and domestic sometimes doesn't bring hordes of readers to the door, but... Yeah, and our own um, Alice O'Keefe points out that she's never been nominated or even longlisted for a Booker slash Cranky um, or the Women's <laughs> Prize. And also the reviewers seem to pick up on that as well. Why hasn't she ever been longlisted for one of the big literary prizes? Yeah, it does sound mad. Well, we're so all So we're fans, making this Tessa Hadley month then? Well, yeah. I think it just continually can be Tessa Hadley time because every everyone that I ever speak to says, why isn't Tessa Hadley more famous? So... Let's just continue to build on yeah, this uh, build on this moment <laughs> of getting Tessa Hadley more recognition. We're talking to Tom Kerridge next. His book's been doing amazingly well, hasn't it? Yes, well, last year's Lose Weight for Good was the best-selling hardback non-fiction book of 2018. Um, and it actually prevented Fire and Fury to get into the number one spot, which during January 2018 was the most sought after book in the world. Mm. So we had to kind of frame it as like, you know, UK book buyers obviously really care about how bad Trump is. But, you know, it's also January and we all want to fit back in our jeans. So, <laughs> um, and Fresh Start, which is a new one, has been uh, knocked Michelle Obama off the top spot and um, was hardback nonfiction number one for the whole of January. And I think it sold around over 100,000 copies already. Gosh. So, yeah, it's a big deal. Mm. We'll or a smaller deal. Yeah, a slimline deal. Yeah. Yes, we were, we'll be talking to him later on. Thanks ever so much, Tom and Kira. Thank you. Thanks. Caroline, how lovely to have you. It's your first time on the podcast. Tell us what you do at The Bookseller. I'm The Bookseller's web editor, so I help to run our website and social media, and I also chair our YA Book Prize. Yes, the Young Adult Book Prize, and the shortlist was announced last week. Yeah, so the YA Book Prize was set up in 2014, to celebrate great YA books from the UK and Ireland. And we've just announced the shortlist for the fifth year of the prize. And uh, I'm probably not allowed to ask you if you've got any favourites on the list. <laughs> have I, as the organiser? Because that would be wrong. No, but tell I us have about a couple. ten favourites. <laughs> ten ten favourites. So it's ten books. <laughs> ten books. It's a, it's a long shortlist and um, we call them the YA 10. So they're the sort of ten YA books from the UK and Ireland that anyone who's interested in YA should probably pick up. Has anyone been on the list before? Yeah, so um, one of the books on the shortlist is by Louise O'Neill, who was actually the first winner of the prize um, way back in 2015. 
Um, so her feminist retelling of The Little Mermaid called The Surface Breaks has made the shortlist this year and Louise was also shortlisted for the prize in 2016 for asking for it, her second novel. Mm-hmm. This is, well, similar and different to her previous books. All of Louise's books have very strong feminist themes so this is a fantasy and it's very lyrical but at the same time it does have a lot of pertinence to real life issues i think she's great louise o'neill i love her i've loved all of her books and in fact i think out in paperback this month is her first adult novel no that's right yeah almost love an amazing writer yeah and this came out i think one month after almost love came out so (laughs) it was a quick turnaround for her (laughs) the other authors that have been shortlisted before are juno dawson who was previously shortlisted for her horror novel say her name and is shortlisted this year for clean which is a very shiny book um, and it's about a socialite who almost overdoses and goes into rehab it's quite a fun read it's definitely at the top end of ya there's some interesting language top end as in age bracket age bracket Yeah. (laughs) yeah But that's a, a really good read. And Sarah Barnard is also on the shortlist for Goodbye Perfect, which is her third novel. Her her debut was on the shortlist two years ago. Um, and Goodbye Perfect is a book about a girl whose best friend, who up till then has been a very steady, straight-A student, goes on the run with someone very unexpected. Oh. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting read. And what happens next with the prize? When's the winner announced? So the winner will be announced at Hay Festival on the 30th of May and we will be championing all of the shortlisted books on social media up till then and the winning book will be decided by our group of expert judges which includes YA author Alex Wheatle and Everyday Sexism founder Laura Bates and also teen judges from schools oh, across the that's country. Nice. Yeah. Thank you, Caroline, and thanks, Tom and Kira. Thank you all for coming in today. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's time to talk to Tom Kerridge, whose book Fresh Start has been dominating the non-fiction chart. Tom is a chef, and his pub The Hand and Flowers in Marlow is the only UK pub to have two Michelin stars. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Tell us how you first got into cooking. Uh, I needed money. That was basically <laughs> it. I, I, I got to a point where I'd been like doing not very much and I was 18 years old and I needed to get to a point where I could consider leaving home or I can consider buying a car and putting tinted windows in it and buying a stereo for it and and the only way that's ever going to happen is if you go out and earn money so I got a job um, washing up in um, a hotel up in Painswick and then I ended up staying in as a chef and then moving quite quickly on to Colcote Manor which is a mission starred hotel and that was it. I, I fell in love with the industry, or the uh, like. The industry found me. It was very lucky, you know. As an eighteen-year-old, I went into a kitchen, and it suddenly became. I, I just loved everything about the industry: the late nights, the early mornings, the slightly left-field way of life, the way that you know your social life is very different. I was told that there was no social life if you work in the hospitality industry, but it couldn't be further from the truth. The hospitality industry is uh, the social life in it is is phenomenal. It's amazing. It's just different to everybody else's and that I like the fact that it wasn't a normal job it was creative it was rock and roll it was it is an industry that's full of an amazing eclectic band of people
people from all sorts of different backgrounds and nationalities that you get to meet and there's so many opportunities for it so yeah as an industry it was it completely grabbed me as an 18 year old and, and I love everything about it. Mm-hmm. That was certainly my experience of working in um, the pub's finest time of my life really and you make your social life with the people you work with and the people that come in don't you there's always chat going on. Well yeah I mean it's always the people that you work with and if you if you're in the industry then you still know you know I mean chefs have got this amazing talent for turning up into a city that you you might not know or have ever been but they will always find that bar the one that uh, you know the the locals know that that they don't go to the one that's open till late the one that has lock-ins the one that's like you're more likely to get mugged in the one that the chefs, <laughs> chefs have this natural ability to find that place you bought your own pub, The Hand and Flowers, in 2005. What yeah. sort of pub did you want it to be? Well, we just wanted to find a space that was somewhere where we wanted to go on our days off, pretty much. Myself and Beth, my wife, it was just somewhere where I wanted the high standard of food, my vision of um, the quality rather than necessarily the faff that goes with everything else, that I, the levels that I've been cooking at, but just quality of the ingredient and the history and heritage of the produce and everything to have a, a purpose and a reason. So, you know, when you invest in small-scale farmers and, and producers, it's a really nice thing to be able to convey that story across to guests and to customers. So, And we wanted somewhere that we felt that it was part of a community and felt that it was somewhere for, I suppose, an area that would embrace and uh, you know, Marlow is, is a beautiful town and it really has, you know, it is our home. It is somewhere now that, we, you know, we, we, we never see ourselves moving and it's a wonderful town that really embraces entrepreneurial spirit and people that get on with it and do things on their own but it has a wonderful community base as well so the idea of opening somewhere like that was, and that, and that was essentially what it was for. We didn't for one minute expect um, to be in the position that we're in now. I mean, that's just come through, I suppose, own personal desire to improve bit by bit every single day and constant reinvestment in a business we had no rule book there's no thing that tells you what path you should go down to value success or what where it should stop or what it should be so so every single penny or every and still pretty much every penny that the hand of flowers earns is reinvested back into the business so it's been a constant growth about staff and and equipment and new kitchens and bits so just I suppose that quest for just getting better for a guest every time they come and when did the book start what made you want to write a book John Croft from Absolute Press approached us many, many years ago to originally do a Hand of Flowers book, um, which we thought would be a lovely thing to do. Um, and at that point, we were like, OK, great. Yeah, this would be quite a special thing to do. Um, but then at the same point, we were talking to the BBC and we ended up doing a, a series, um, which was the proper pub food series. So it, it made real sense for the Hand of Flowers book to be instead of being a hand of flowers, but to be associated with the television show so that the two things went hand in hand. Um, so the recipes that were available from the show, people could buy in a book. And, and that works really well because it allowed us then to be able to convey recipes that are accessible for people to cook. You know, there were cookbooks for me at that point and still are about people being able to pick them up and follow recipes and cook the actual dishes. So the book came along with the TV series and it continued from there. So so the Hand of Flowers book still hasn't been written. So the original <laughs> the original concept of doing it with Absolute Press then, you know, and now John is now a huge part of Bloomsbury, which have been, you know, such a wonderful and amazing publishers and been incredibly supportive of everything that we've done. And we've continued to go on these exciting journeys of creating books that are accessible for people to read and, and, and cook from. So for our point of view, it's just this lovely journey of conveying with 
I suppose the guests that come to our restaurants, so, you know, when you come and eat in somewhere that has one or two Michelin stars, you're coming into a space um, normally that you would associate that you couldn't cook food of that level. However, what we do at the Hand of Flowers and at the Coach and at the Bar and Grill is we always try to make sure that the food feels accessible. So we, we found ourselves in this lovely position where we may have Michelin stars. However, there are chips on the menu. So <laughs> they're things that people recognize. And that's where we've been able to get some of that chef technique into a, I suppose, a cookbook that then becomes accessible. So it's that lovely crossover of brands where, you know, we're seen as high end in terms of professionalism um, within the industry of the standard and level that we cook at. However, the accessibility has mean that it's been able to tick boxes for a lot of people to be able to cook great food and just improve on flavours of dishes that they probably already know how to do, a lasagna or a bolognese sauce or a type of curry. But there's hints and tips and techniques that will definitely improve their cooking that they're already doing. Mm-hmm. Now, can we talk about the booze? Yeah, we can talk about booze. <laughs> we can talk about it, but we're not going to drink any. No, me neither, not anymore. Tell us the story. So I was approaching my 40th birthday and I need I recognised I needed to make a change in my life, like um, both from a huge health kick. And, and it's a point where you, you look back and you reflect on um, the position that you're in. And I, I was at a point where, I mean, food was massive and a huge part of my life, but I was eating all the wrong things at all the wrong times and with, without, without a single care um, for what I was consuming. Um, never thought about it, didn't really bother me. Um, but alcohol was a massive part of my life. So so from the professionalism of a kitchen where you drive things forward and I think the pressures of running businesses and the pressures of running businesses that are cooking at a two-star level, um, you always need a release of some sort. And for me, it's late at night and, and it was alcohol. And normally the way that I recognised that there was an issue for me was, I mean, one, I would always have pretty much a case of beer and a bottle of gin in the car just in case I was working somewhere and the bar was closed that night I'd be able to get a drink um or I was in control of businesses I run businesses with people and I'm in control of the food and and everything in my life I was driving forward and I was I am in control of everything that I do um however there was something there that was in control of me was controlling my um thoughts for what i it it wasn't about me deciding when i wanted a drink it was a drink telling Mm -hmm. me that i need one so and and that point of recognition was the thing that i knew it had flipped the wrong way the wrong side so i needed to make a decision and a change and and again, it's one of those things, I'm quite fortunate that I, if I put my mind to things, I find that I'm quite good at a willpower situation of driving things on. And, and the way I look at it is that I look at it and go, well, if someone else has done it, then surely I can do mm-hmm. it. So, And I armed myself with a little bit of research, but not a huge amount, and just thought, well, you know, if I'm going to stop drinking, I've just got to stop drinking. I know, mm-hmm. And I know there's no, there's no such thing as a drink for me. I don't understand people who can have a drink the, the drink for me the purpose of it is for getting smashed in and having fun <laughs> like it and like and taking it to an extreme and constant and with it being relentless yeah. and I don't see the point of a pint of lager or a single glass of wine to me it, it's it's not you know I understand people like the taste but it's for me it's not about the taste it's the effect it's the mental effect I, I needed to not have that in my life so mm-hmm. so there's no such thing as a single drink because I know it'll end up in um a very late night party somewhere probably where we shouldn't be. <laughs> I think you're an inspiration because life certainly didn't stop being fun, did it, when you stopped drinking? 
No, I, I mean, it just continues. We, we grow and we've grown as a business. In fact, we, we've been able to achieve more and do much more without alcohol being a part of my life because it's much cleaner, it's much focused, there's much more drive and, uh, and it's a lot easier to get on with things the next day and you can pick pieces up and make decisions quicker and clearer and crisper and and in terms of business we've been able to grow hugely and 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 not just in terms of that on a I suppose on a restaurant and a a pub business but in terms of in in terms of a media profile and in terms of an understanding and moving books forward and writing and being a part of everything is a lot crisper and cleaner you know normally the times that I have to write books are normally late at night and when I mean late at night I mean like three or four in the morning late you know and then if you're then getting up again at seven you know you can't do that whilst you're drinking those things can't exist so and also fame and people knowing who you are is a we I find not uncomfortable but I do I don't struggle with it but I do find it a little weird I do find the fact that just because you know I haven't ever wanted to be famous I've just wanted to be good at my chosen profession and alongside that has come a recognition that a few people know who I am and then you then always need to be able to have a conversation to be able to be on form I, I never want the idea of being grumpy hungover a picture in a tabloid newspaper of me falling out of a bar those sort of things I just can't I, I'm, I, I just wouldn't want so the alcohol completely disappears and it has allowed me to then grow everything else as a business but with that comes excitement and enjoyment and opportunities that are presented to you with travel and being asked to do fun things and film great shows or appear on you know live television and all sorts of stuff that's pretty rock and roll and good fun without it having to be uh, booze involved well somewhat fittingly your newest book tom is called fresh start tell us about it so it's kind of a follow-up the last two books had been um diet books and they've been one was my own personal journey and another one was kind of in conjunction with the NHS on a 12-week diet plan of low calorie. However, Fresh Start is about trying to encourage people not to necessarily to ditch convenience food, but to try and break the habit of it being something that is a part of everyday life Um, and getting back into the kitchen and learning about ingredients and encouraging families to cook and just to try and to make sure that you're again getting a grip and taking control of your life your destiny through food so it's not a diet book however it is healthier based recipes there are calorie counts in there but there are also some like super rich chocolate puddings in there with the calorie count in it just so that you know if you are watching your calories you know how much you're eating But the whole kind of concept of it was to encourage people to get back in kitchens, enjoy eating good food and taking responsibility. Because essentially, if you're cooking dishes that you're putting all the ingredients in, you know exactly what's in it. Whereas convenience food, you just don't. There's hidden sugars and salts. Because it ran alongside a television show. So we take families on on a journey, again, another 12-week journey with us of trying to change their and break their... Um, slightly dysfunctional eating habits. Some people who just hadn't cooked at all. Some, you know, there were some guys in there that didn't even pretty much know where the kitchen was in their house. So, the idea of encouraging people to get back into kitchens and get kids in because all of them were worried about their kids having bad habits. Mm. But the kids are going to have bad habits because they've got them themselves. So actually, some of the most encouraging stuff from it was the actual children, the journeys that they went on. They, they were interested in food, where it comes from. There's history. There's places around the world you can visit by j- just cooking Thai food in your own kitchen. You, you know, you get an understanding of geography and, and history and 
colours and flavours and textures and there's so much that food suddenly becomes quite exciting if you look at it in the right way and you take control of cooking and, and the encouragement of people that people take ownership when they cook something so there, there, there's an end result that you thoroughly enjoy when you've cooked something it's like painting a picture or, or making something with the kids at school you know that you know how many times the kids come back with something that they've made at school that I mean let's be honest it's an egg box with, with something <laughs> stuck on it like the end result isn't great but they feel so proud of it you know and that, it's the same sort of thing with food they, they, that will encourage them to be a part of it of eating something or putting layers of flavours on pizzas or just all those sort of things that make so creating a good relationship with food I love the pictures of your son cooking in the book and um, you're a very busy man and a family man as well how do you make time for family life I try to take Sundays off I try most Sundays to block them off and normally I take my little man to rugby first thing so he's plays rugby tot so he's he's in the age group above his age because he's so big so he's in <laughs> he's in the three and a half to five year old group and he and he has to concentrate for about 45 minutes of running around and passing a ball mm. and, and doing whatever and he does really well at it for about 35 minutes and then he just wants to like just run around but, but I, like that's a joy and he absolutely loves it so t- i take him to rugby then we'll probably go and meet my wife beth and we'll have a bit of breakfast somewhere probably at the coach one of our restaurants in marlow and then if the weather's nice, we'll go at the park, feed the ducks. And, you know, I'll take him swimming. Then we'll go out to go and see one of the, the, the town farms or we'll go to like anything to do with racing cars. He's all over that. So it's, <laughs> it's generally a family day. And then at the end of it, it'll be, I find it a privilege when it's time to take him to bed and, you know, give him a bath and we have a we'll sit down and read a book with him as he goes to sleep. And that, that's the dream day. And then probably just watch a little bit of telly with Beth in the evening a recorded match of the day if I can convince her to (laughs) sit down and watch football but that doesn't often happen (laughs) that sounds lovely I hope you have many of those delightful Sundays (laughs) in the future and that all the work continues to go magnificently thanks for coming to talk to us thank you very much what a pleasure to speak to Tom Kerridge what a lovely man he is and um, I've been interviewing authors for years now my dad has never been so excited about anything as he was about me meeting Tom Kerridge Um, I'll be glad to pass on to him what a lovely chap he is Fresh Start is out now, and maybe I'll have a go at the roasted winter sprout curry this weekend. Now I'm going to hand you over to Nigel, who's going to quiz the book doctors. Thank you, Cathy. Each show, we ask three readers to tell the doctors, two of our best indie bookshops, what they read last and to get ideas for their next read. This episode's two book doctors have both just been announced as regional finalists in the British Book Awards Independent Bookshop of the Year, so well done to them for that. They're from opposite ends of the country. Let's say hello to Fleur Sinclair from Seven Oaks Bookshop down in Kent and Richard Drake from the eponymous Drake the Bookshop in Stockton-on-Tees. Welcome both to the Bookseller Podcast. Hello. Hello. Hi there. So just before we get to the books, uh, let's find out a bit about the shops. Fleur, Seven Oaks Bookshop, tell us a bit more and how did you become involved? The Seven Oaks Bookshop, it's a small commuter town um, just south of London in Kent. And last year in 2018, we celebrated the 70th birthday of um, the bookshop. So it's long established in um, in the town in the same building. Um, and I am the fourth owner since it was first formed. 
and uh, the children of the founders of the bookshop they're still my landlords so um, it's all quite a family affair as it were and yeah it's you know really friendly nice bookshop with a cafe in the front and a big children's bit in the back so. and I hope they're friendly landlords you know so normally uh, if you get a bunch of bookshops together then the, the big complaint is about the rent and the rates so you can't really uh, compare yeah. about the rent no we can't complain about the rent and I think they feel very fondly about the fact that the bookshop is still going I think they see it as like a legacy um, from their parents so yeah we're extremely fortunate in that and yes they are very nice landlords so and what was it 70 years 70 years 70, 70. years god yeah. that's great going isn't it it is great going yeah <laughs> and Richard what's the story behind Drake the Bookshop with the name I'm kind of guessing that you set it up um, other end of the country, other end of the time scale. Absolutely, yes. From seventy years to three and a half years, three yeah, and a considerably half. different. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, once upon a time, I was a teacher, and now I'm standing in the middle of my own bookshop. So we keep blaming Matthew, my son, for this. Um, he keeps getting very grumpy and cringing every time I tell the story, but it is ultimately kind of his fault. Unfortunately, a, a teacher who was getting frustrated with red tape and paperwork and bits and pieces and looking for a kind of a bit of an escape. So uh, we were over in Penrith about to go and do some climbing in the mountains, looking for distractions and came across the Wordsworth Bookshop and Cafe, which ironically enough is no longer with us, unfortunately. And um, Mel and I kind of looked at each other and we were like, we could do this, we could do this. And so that was August Bank Holiday and by the time December came round, Matthew had heard enough of us banging on about this thing and he just turned around and said, are you going to do something about it or what? So January 2015, I essentially gave my notice in with no idea how you open or run, uh, some would argue both of those things still stand, um, a bookshop. And here we are, three and a half years later, it's still here and thrilled to bits that we're in Stockton, birthplace of the railway, being supported morning, noon and night by the fantastic people of Stockton. Um, we can open the bookshop, but it is ultimately down to them that they keep coming back and, and they do keep coming back. They're brilliant. So we love it. That's fantastic. Um, and Stockton, that was your stomping ground? We live kind of a little bit down the road. Uh, we were sort of fortunate in that there's an, an enterprise arcade, so a big old department store that you can rent a small section out of. And so we had been looking around for properties to, to rent, and then this came up, and so it's, it's a chance to test drive the business, essentially. Um, so looking back, I am considerably less grey as a consequence of that brilliant startup scheme that, that Stockton Council run that meant that first year was being able to hone our skills and cultivate relationships with customers. Um, and that has kind of carried on round the corner to where we moved to. Oh, well done, the council. It's not often you hear those words. Well, let's get on with some inspiration for our readers. Uh, so the first one we got here is uh, Caroline, who's a teacher from Cornwall. The last book she read was Winter by Ali Smith. She'd never read a book like it. She struggled at first, but as uh, she says, it's awesome. And normally she reads fiction. Uh, she likes a big family saga. She likes C.J. Sansom, Nothing Too Violent. Her favourite ever books, The Crimson Petal and the White by Michael Faber. We asked her, what are you looking for? And she said, a big immersive book, something long and satisfying. So, Fleur, what are you going to suggest for Caroline? Well, two suggestions, actually. I thought, I know she says that she wants a big immersive book, but she did say that she read Ali Smith against her will and she did find it awesome. So I thought if she enjoyed that experience, then she should possibly try Deborah Levy and anything by her. She's just the most fantastic writer of fiction and like her essays just about being a woman and being alive um, are, are so incredible that I think um, she should just have a little go at those, even if it's just 
just a little sort of one by her bed just to dip in and out of. Um, but in terms of the big book, um, I think I would suggest Washington Black by Essie Edugan. It was on the Booker shortlist this year um, and it was one of the most enjoyable novels I read last year. It's really big, it's really ambitious, it sort of crosses genres being sort of historical and science and slave trade and it sort of sweeps the reader along but there's so much sort of meaty rich detailed stuff in it I think um, hopefully she won't be disappointed. So they're my two my two recommendations. Well two very good and two very different ones there. Um Richard, uh, hopefully you're not duplicating those? I'm not, no. I've gone for a book that has a six-page cast list, which I didn't actually ever refer back to, so I think that's probably testament to it. If I'm perfectly honest, my guilty pleasure has always kind of been the huge weighty tomes of Ken Follett. So I've gone for the um, the Century Trilogy, um, starting with Fall of Giants. If you're after a big immersive book, then 850 pages certainly does the big bit. And so it's a chronicle of the 20th century from Billy Williams in 1911 who went down the pit on his first day when King George the fifth was crowned at Westminster Abbey and it intertwines from coal mining Wales London Berlin Russia Cuba the States I'm fairly certain I've forgotten lots of other places as well and so my 20th century history is pretty lame getting to the end of this trilogy I learned a lot more about the, the history of the world but you get Ken Follett's really good way of intertwining fictional characters in with the actual events that happen so partway in the second I think there's a really interesting section and scene uh, around the Berlin Wall and just after it's built and people kind of escaping which as I said earlier I'm hopeless when it comes to remembering things in books but that kind of scene and passage within there has sort of stayed with me and I think we must have been to Berlin around the time that I read that so um, yeah that's my uh, weighty tome for Caroline it may well be an obvious one that's already done but I think it is a a brilliant series. No I don't think so and I don't think Ken Follett kind of gets mentioned enough so that's excellent choices we're now going to go head into a completely different direction this is angelo who's 21 he's from nottingham he's a student and the last book he read was dracula uh, the types of books he's mentioning here cash 22 fahrenheit 451 so he's looking for something light-hearted and funny could be sci-fi doesn't have to be so fleur what are you going to suggest for angelo okay angelo i sort of need to make an apology to begin with because <laughs> as soon as i see the phrase sci-fi i'm afraid i just panic because i read so few things like that and i would go running for one of my colleagues grace who is just like a magnificent person and just loves everything that i think um angelo would too so she has given me some advice so hold on a sec we need to get that name <laughs> check again this is grace then. this is grace who okay. is just super duper well, grace <laughs> and uh first of all she said absolutely anything and it was like in a very sort of capitals voice um by terry pratchett um if he hasn't gone there already but um she says good omens is her favorite um but she also mentions tom holt um and a couple of books by him called donut and when it's a jar and she says they're fantastically funny um about alternative realities with a completely unwilling hero and then there's one other one which she says which i know has been made into a film recently so he might know it too is ready player one which is a crazy blend of charlie and the chocolate factory meets the matrix so those are my where well, i've just oh, heard that great. old one again <laughs> 
but this is the beauty of bookshops isn't it that we are like a team of like people all with like knowledge to impart so um yeah hopefully hopefully there'll be something there for angelo <laughs> well i should think so and you saying terry pratchett you know automatically kind of takes you on to neil gaiman as well so yes that's yes. certainly an area worth exploring richard where were you heading on this well i'm gonna suggest a fleur um, if she's not a fan of sci-fi, that uh, Dark Matter by Blake Crouch is a really brilliant novel. It's kind of Schrodinger's cat, so that existence of multiverses and all sorts of things like that. It's a, it's a thriller, but it's a really, really good one. So Angelo can have that one as well, but also Fleur, if she's not... I'm, I must admit, I'm not a huge sci-fi fan, but that was a real interesting kind of one for me. Um, however, I saw two words on this page, uh, Kurt and Vonnegut, so I instantly went Gavin Exton's. Anything by Gavin Exton's is brilliant, but uh, The Universe versus Alex Woods would be my recommendation as a nod to Kurt Vonnegut. Alex Woods is, well, he was hit by a meteorite when he was 10, and it kind of gives him a bit of a, an, an interesting future there. He, he's certainly on the spectrum. Um, his mum is a fortune teller and a single parent. Um, Alex is a massively easy target for bullies, which is how he comes to meet up with his neighbour and eventually friend, Mr. Peterson, who points... Alex in the direction of the Kurt Vonnegut novels to the extent that they actually have a Kurt Vonnegut book group in the end. Alex is 17, but right at the start of the novel, Alex is stopped at customs with 113 grams of marijuana and full of ashes. Um, and, well, kind of chaos and curious incidents and hilarity and astrology and all sorts of stuff happen from then on. There is a twist. I, I'm, I don't ever like giving away too much i usually give less away than is on the back cover sorry are we doing a spoiler alert here they, no we're not because you can't describe or explain the thing that actually does ultimately happen in this because it is a really really novel direction that gavin takes in this um certainly came as a surprise to me and a really interesting topic it's clearly one if you have read it you can then discuss afterwards about the general topic but i've never encountered a book that talks about this topic that is ultimately discussed before so it's really interesting it's funny it's sad it's somewhere in between as well so i think um, the universe versus alex woods would be my suggestion the universe versus alex woods well that's a great choice both great choices there and our final patient is katie uh, she's from bournemouth she's 30 years old works in a cafe the last book she read was the world's wife by caroline duffy and she mostly does read poetry and literary fiction What's she looking for? Some new poetry, maybe, or something about theatre? Fleur, is this one for you, or are we asking Grace again? We like Grace. This is much more for me, and so I'm sort of like relaxing back in an armchair, breathing a huge <laughs> sigh of relief. Um, so thank you, Katie. Um, yes, the first book I'd recommend is The Lives and Letters of the National Theatre, which is a brilliant sort of compendium of anecdotes and all sorts, which is, um, I think it says it's selected by and edited by uh, Daniel Rosenthal. And um, it's something that I took home um, and I'm longing to read it um, because I love all those kind of fruity anecdotes anecdotes by fruity old actors and it's things this like that. It's this lovey-dom type stuff. <laughs> it's lovey-dom. Yeah. And there's a great quote on the back of a letter from uh, Judy Dench to David Hare that says, can't you write me a musical so that I can sit on a chair and a fur hat and nothing else and sing rude songs? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, <laughs> this is like, I think that should be like really enjoyable if you wanted something about theatre. But just with the poetry, um, and this is a book which is about to come out that um, I can't wait to read. So maybe, you know, Katie and I could have our own mini book club and discuss it after it comes out. And it's the first novel um, by Ocean Vong, who won the Forward Prize and the T.S. Eliot. And he's got a new novel coming out with, I think, the nicest title I've 
possibly ever heard, uh, which is On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, and it comes out in June. So um, I will read it, and hopefully Katie will, and maybe one day we will meet in a station somewhere and discuss it whilst waiting for a delayed train, something like that. So there we are. (laughs) In black and white, obviously. In black and white, of course, yeah. (laughs) Richard, if you can beat that, you're doing well. No, um, I think this was kind of my my slightly fleur moment on here. Um, I thought poetry, uh, Brian Bilston has a new one coming out next month, so that that kind of needs flagging up. I didn't in the end write down the title of the new Brian Bilston, but that will be uh, a real brilliant one. Um, I kind of went theatre, not completely sure that I know, and then looked at literary fiction and thought, oh dear, this probably isn't going to be quite the right one. But I've gone with Anthony Harris's The Truth and Triumphs of Grace Atherton which is about a woman who's had her heart broken. She spends the first third of the book involved in a relationship with a a, a gentleman that she shouldn't. And you kind of have to go past that a little bit because she's the narrator. So it's all going to be absolutely fine and lovely and work out properly. And you're like, no, no, it's not. Grace, come along, please. But at the beginning, what happens is there is an incident in the Paris metro and her boyfriend saves the day and then is plastered all over the press, all over Europe, and it kind of is fairly obvious that these two are together, so that kind of causes a bit of a stumbling block. But the reason that I kind of went with it and thought it might work is because Grace's job is a maker of cellos and other string instruments. There is a part in there where there is a competition apparently each year in Cremona where the best um, string instrument is judged and awarded prizes. And I was absolutely fascinated by that whole... I'm not a a huge music fan or know very much about music, but the the whole part within there about the making and the the how this works and the how that works and and why you have to leave this as long as that. The backstory of how you make string instruments and cellos was a really kind of interesting part within there. And there's a a vivacious old man and a straight-talking teenager who kickstart Grace into the next chapter of her life, and they're kind of interwoven in there along the way as well so i'm prepared to be sort of frowned at on that one because it's not really what she asked for but um i I think it was a it's a a lovely book it's a really really lovely read well i think that comes into the context of that's a book that i've never heard of we always work on the basis that kathy has heard of every book so we'll assume (laughs) she has um but um but i think that sounds fascinating in a way i think it almost sort of leads us on because you can't have that now for the the book that you really want everybody to take out of your shops at the moment, which was the one I was going to leave you with. So, Fleur, if a customer comes in, what do you kind of keep them in the shop until they've bought a copy of? Okay, so there is one that I read um, in the summer, and I was so... One of those ones where you think, oh, I'll just see what this one's like, you know, and then you're sort of 100 pages in, and then it's like the middle of the night, and you know everything's over and all you've done is just be immersed in the book and I passed it on to colleagues and we were all like unanimous in its complete brilliance and every customer that we've ever passed it on to has gone and said exactly the same thing so this book is called Tomorrow and it's by a writer called Elizabeth Taylor Russell it's set in Denmark just after the Second World War and it's incredibly tragic but beautifully brilliantly written one of those ones where you look up after reading a sentence and go wow and it's a hotel novel which I'm quite partial to I quite like the confines of a hotel for my characters and it's also set on an island so there's so many sort of things that constrain it but all the imagery the other characters in the hotel there's a sort of old major who married 
completely the wrong woman who still dresses like a young woman, even though she's really ancient and has little dolls and a high-pitched voice. And the characters are incredible. The writing is brilliant. It will make you gasp at the tragedy and awfulness of some of the things that have happened to the main character. But you keep going because it's clearly the best book that's ever been written. Sounds clearly, clearly, obviously. <laughs> yeah. it, it had a hint of William Trevor about it. Possibly. I mean, I think great hotel novels uh, like The Gentleman in Moscow, there's so many that sort of use that setting and and the characters and, and, and do that so well. But this one, this one really stands out and it is quite little known. So yeah. you kind of feel confident in going, aha, I bet you've not read this. Um, and, you know, so it's it's a goodie. Yeah. That's a goodie. So that was tomorrow. That was Elizabeth Taylor Russell. And she's Elizabeth with an S, just in case. Oh, right. OK. Not to confuse. So there we are. Elizabeth yeah. with an S. Right. <laughs> yeah. And Richard, what do the good people of Stockton find themselves being pressed with? I'm just changing my spelling of Elizabeth to an S. So I can go <laughs> Thank you. I'm all in a yeah. <laughs> good. Um, yeah, I mean, my mum has just said she got absolutely nothing done the other day. She was reading A Gentleman in Moscow. She's really, really loving that at the moment. Um, it, there are so many, aren't there? In fact, as I'm looking around the shop thinking, do I, I do want to go with this one, but there are so many others that are out there. Come um, on, it's decision time. Yeah, no, well, I've, I've gone and I've picked up. As soon as I got this one, I, I went straight to, um, it came out last Thursday. We were very, very excited that Nuala Elwood decided to spend launch night with us. It's her second novel, and it's called Day of the Accident. It lasted about six hours in our house, across two of us reading it. Um, I have certainly never read a, a, a book so quickly, and I've never seen Mel read a, a thriller as kind of concentrated. And, you know, Sunday morning she started it, Sunday evening she'd finished it. It's a real, real brilliant page turner, and it just draws you in on every level. A young lady called Maggie has woken up from a, a coma, and her world is torn apart. She discovers that her daughter, Elspeth, has drowned in the car accident that Maggie was involved in. And Maggie knows absolutely nothing at all about this, including where her husband is, and why everyone's being a little bit sort of secretive about the whole thing, and that she can't help but feel that actually they're not telling the truth about the fact that her daughter isn't around anymore, that she is there, and, and they're just kind of fobbing her off. I'm hopeless. I usually know and understand who's done it about five pages after it's finished. But there are a series of letters in here that are written, Dear Mummy, and then kind of carry on. They're so, so cleverly interwoven into the plot because partway through you think, oh, yes, yes, I've got it, and then no, not even close. As page turners go, we're, we're really kind of recommending and um, promoting that one at the moment because it, it, and it is it's absolutely brilliant. Helped, obviously, by the fact that Nuala came in herself with the proof copy and, and gave us uh, it, it in person, which we absolutely love. That's kind of one of the joys of being a bookseller. Things like authors reading to you and handing you proofs personally is just such a, a, a lovely joy of the job. Yeah. Well, there's some great choices there. You'll find them all listed on the bookseller.com slash podcast, and they're well worth checking out. And we always end the book doctors by emphasising the real joy of buying books from a specialist bookshop and keeping our high streets vibrant. And I also wanted to flag, because i just seen it recently, I think this was on your uh, website, Richard, that you can pre-order The Secret Commonwealth, the much-anticipated second volume in Philip Pullman's The Book of Dust, from Seven Oaks Bookshop or Drake the Bookshop or your local indie. Uh, people sometimes think that uh, you can only pre-order via a rather large online retailer, but it ain't so. So... In the meantime, uh, huge thanks to Fleur and to Richard and goodbye from Cathy and me and from all of us at the bookseller. So bye, both of you, and thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>
Well, weren't they great choices? And I'm going to add one more, uh, not from me, but from Mr. B's down in Bath. Nick Bottomley, Mr. B himself, was on podcast one, and he recommended, and we didn't get a chance to include it, Roy Jacobson's The Unseen, translated from the Norwegian by Don Bartlett and Don Shaw. I just started reading it on the train down from Edinburgh. There's something of Donald Ryan about it, maybe a hint of Annie Proulx or Alistair MacLeod, and I thought it was just a spot-on recommendation. And I think what everyone should have heard from today is that Indie bookshops, specialist bookshops, they really can dig out some good stuff. So that's it from the Book Doctors. Back to you, Cathy. Lovely. And for any listening authors, I've done events at both those shops and they are amazing. So well organised, so lovely. So I'd highly recommend them as a venue. Now, we're nearly at the end of the show, but before we say goodbye, let's get out and about. Nigel, tell us about bookgig.com. Well, BookGig is the bookseller's new site that lists book events, author readings, book signings and so on, up and down the country. And what are you fancying for March? Well, the big one, of course, is World Book Day on 7th of March, and there are lots and lots of events up and down the country. Also on 7th of March, somewhat older audience, Matt Haig is in Shoreditch talking about notes on a nervous planet. And one last one on 28th of March down in Plymouth, Raina Wynne is talking about her book The Salt Path, which was one of my favourites of 2018. But lots, lots more at bookgig.com. Thank you. That's it for now. In our next podcast, we'll be talking about April and we'll have two new book doctors in the chair and an amazing novelist. So thank you to the book doctors for their picks and thanks also to the readers who sent in their questions. If you would like to be one of our patients or indeed talk to us about anything, then you can tweet at the bookseller or come to our Facebook page or just email us on podcast at thebookseller.com. We're available on iTunes, so please subscribe or listen to us at thebookseller.com. And now Mariam Khan reads from the introduction to the book she's edited called It's Not About the Burqa. She explains what inspired her to create this collection of essays about being a Muslim woman today. And that will end the fourth edition of the Bookseller Podcast. This has been a heavy entertainment production. I'm Cathy Rensenbrink. Thanks for listening and happy reading. In January 2016, the Daily Telegraph reported on a private conversation in which David Cameron said he considered Muslim women to be traditionally submissive. The response to his comments was anything but. Photographs of Muslim women holding up placards explaining exactly how they were not hashtag traditionally submissive spread across the internet. These women were everything from war survivor to PhD student, from mother to doctor. As I watched it all unfold online, I realised that I was always hearing things about Muslim women, things about who we were and who we were supposed to be and how we were supposed to act. When was the last time you had a Muslim woman speak for herself without a filter or outside the white gaze, on her own terms or outside the narrative built around us by the media and governments? If Muslim women are to progress in society, if Muslim women are to be treated with respect, then it's so important that we challenge the narrative built around us. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? We should be the authors of our narrative and identity. We should be the ones speaking about us. It's not about the burqa brings together Muslim women's voices. It does not represent the experiences of every Muslim woman or claim to cover every single issue faced by Muslim women. It's not possible to create that book. But this book is a start, a movement. 
we Muslim women are reclaiming and rewriting our identity. Here are essays about the hijab and wavering faith, about love and divorce, about queer identity, about sex, about the twin threats of a disapproving community and a racist country, and about how Islam and feminism go hand in hand. Every essay in this book is unfinished because each one is the beginning of a very necessary conversation.